0: We'll let uh, the Word of God warm us up. If you got your Bibles with you, let's open up to 2 Thessalonians. We've got one more week, and then we'll go back into the minor prophets. But uh, as we take a look at 2 Thessalonians, we find ourselves in probably the, the height, at least, of 2 Thessalonians as Paul really begins to deal with uh, the problem that was at the heart and the purpose behind him writing the book of 2 Thessalonians. Remember when he wrote 1 Thessalonians, he's praising them. He'd been there one month. Hey guys, wow, you got your faith, you're moving forward, your love is, is amazing, your hope. I mean, he just really builds on all the things that they're doing. But somewhere between First Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians, what they call a spurious letter came. It means a, a letter came that claimed to be from Paul. Maybe it was a prophecy, maybe it was an a itinerant preacher that came through and brought a word to the people, but nonetheless, they were facing the most fierce persecution in the church at the time, in Thessalonica. That's where Caesar worship began. That's where Christians were first put to the test if they would be willing to take a, take a, pinch, blah, 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 take a pinch of incense, throw it on the fire, and simply say, Caesar is Lord. But the believers wouldn't do it. Christians wouldn't do it. So they, they, I actually had an opportunity to visit the church or the, the town of Thessalonica when I was in Greece. And I got an opportunity in Philippi to see the place where they would have brought those believers that they were struggling with. They'd have brought them into the the Totally round. It's not just a hippodrome or half of a, of a Coliseum. It's, it's all the way circular, just like where we would watch football games today. And in the middle of it, They would turn loose, either gladiators on those Christians, wild beasts on those Christians, that they were being slaughtered. And somebody told the church of Thessalonica that the day of the Lord had already come, that they were in the midst of the tribulation period, and they were confused about what Paul had been speaking to them about in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. So there was this confusion going on. Paul's going to get down to that matter and he's going to lay out for them how they will know the signs of the times. What is it going to look like? What's it going to smell like? What's it going to be like when we come upon that time? So as we take a look at that, that's the point of view and the direction from which uh, Paul is writing. Now he says in chapter 2 verse 1, Now brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, and our gathering together to him, we ask you. Now, I can't go any further than that. We've got to pause for a minute. Unfortunately, it would be a bit of a struggle to lay out the Greek for everybody and understanding of it. So, hopefully, I'll be able to do it justice like this. The two nouns or the two subjects of that sentence are tied together. Those two uh, sentences. They're tied together in the use of the, of the article within the sins, which indicates that we're talking about two separate events separated by a distinguishable amount of time. Now, distinguishable can be argued on, on how big that is, but there's a period of time between the two events. What's the two events? The coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, one, and our gathering together to him, two. Two separate events that are linked together the scripture, if we, if we had time, we, we could go through the scripture and lay out for us all the different areas where the Bible talks about similar issues, where we see, uh, these two, two parts of, of God doing one thing. We see a near fulfillment, fulfillment, a far fulfillment. We see varying degrees of this. So as we look at this, we want to understand that we're looking at one event, but two complementary aspects. And the Greek bears that out for us. And he says in verse two, not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled either by the spirit or by word or by letter. Now that's why some people think there was a spurious letter. Someone brought a word of prophecy. Something got the church in Thessalonica thinking that they were in the midst of the tribulation period. Now, folks, you and I know for sure we might not all agree on our eschatology, but we all know for sure they weren't in the middle of the tribulation period because we're here. So, obviously there's an issue. Obviously there was a problem, and Paul wants to address that problem. He says, and then he says, as though the day of Christ had come. The day of Christ. Now, again, it's a, it's an unfortunate rendering. It should be the day of the Lord, but if you, if you like day of Christ better, it's fine. It's still talking about the day of the Lord. The most talked about period of time in the entire Word of God, it's the, time of Jacob's trouble the tribulation period as though that time had already come God was pouring out his judgment on a Christ rejecting world and the church at Thessalonica is going what's happening I mean we're being slaughtered we're being wiped out you know is, has has God forgotten about us did we do something wrong what's happening what's going on and so they want Paul uh, to give them some insight, some understanding on what their situation is all about. So he says in verse 3, Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition. So he's going to give us two events, and we'll see a third a little bit later on, that point to when you would know you're in the tribulation period. How you're going to know, what you're going to see. Jesus did the same thing with the disciples in Matthew 24, right? These are the signs of the time. And know that the end is not yet. But that you are at the door. That you are nearing that place. You're nearing that time. And so as we look at it, we want to see, we want to indicate that these are the signs of the times. The events that are going to lead up to the beginning of the tribulation period. And the day of the Lord. So as we look at it, this is the focus where he is, he's leaning. Now, the first thing, as we take a look again, I hope not to bore you too much, but there's a couple of interesting points that are within the Greek that we want to be able to get. First, the falling away. Notice that there's an article prior to falling away. The word the. It is the falling away, not a falling away, not an apostasia. And it also is in aorist tense. It's not talking about Something that's going to gradually take place. It is a big time event that happens. Boom. And there's a falling away. There is in that, in this period of time, in this moment, there is those people who are going to go into open rebellion. Now, folks, it doesn't have to be believers that are falling away. It doesn't mean it's not believers that are falling away. But the word can also indicate any type of rebellion against God. Any type of rebellion, any type of, uh, of a concept that really makes God the enemy and, and everything else right. That is the falling away. And we're, we're, we see in the church today, the church today, just like church history, folks, is sad. You do a study of church history and try to come out of that class proud. You'll have a hard time doing it. You'll read about the atrocities done in the name of Jesus Christ around the world. The professor will stand up and tell you that every war ever fought, every battle, everything that ever had ever gone on had some, in some way its foundation in religion. And he'll begin to tell you of the crusades where the church told the armies going into the Holy Land that they could do anything in the name of Jesus and it was not a sin. They could rape, pillage, and murder. They were cut off from all their supplies. And so in their holy war, they went into the promised land. And when they were cut off of supplies, they would slaughter a village and eat the residents. It is a matter of public record in history. That was all done in the name of Jesus Christ. And you wondered why today in the Middle East, there are a group of people over there who hate us, who hate Christians. Now, yes, you and I both know that's not what Christianity really is. But it doesn't matter. That's what was professed to them. That's how they see it you can go over to the Middle East today and they think everyone in the United States is a whoremonger, is all about sex and premarital sex, that they're cheating on one another. Why do they think that? Because that's what the movies are all about. That's what TV portrays. And so they say, hey, we're more righteous than you guys. And they look at the United States as a Christian nation. I don't care what Obama says. They look at the nation that way. And so when you talk to a Muslim... That's what they think. They're kind of shocked to realize there's anyone in the United States with any kind of scruples or any kind of, uh, of, uh, of anything that would guide them. They're surprised to hear that, that anyone would pay attention to what the Word of God says and how someone ought to live their life. So when we sit around and we worry about this jihad that comes, remember what the Bible said Do not be deceived, God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, That will he reap. We sowed the first jihad. We didn't call it that. We called it a crusade. Sounds better that way. But we did the same thing that they're doing. We, speaking of those in the name of Jesus Christ. Those professing Jesus Christ. So... When we look at this falling away, we need to recognize it's not going to be this slow progression that we see today. It's not going to be the church slowly becoming more and more worldly. And that's a sad tale. Isn't that happening? I mean, you have mainline denominations that at one time were on the forefront of, of the Christian movement who are now just curtailing what the Word of God says so that they can be politically correct. And they're, they're opening up their doors and saying, well, we're going to ordain homosexual priests. We're going to go against the Word of God. We're not going to teach the Word of God as authoritative. As soon as you do that, as soon as you say the Word of God is not authoritative, then what do you base anything on? Yeah, it's gone. It's, it's over. It's, you, what's truth? If you take the only thing that's true and you throw it out the window, then what's truth? Now we're like Pilate. What is truth? You're not ever going to find it, and and it's all going to meander down that way. But it's more than that. So keep in mind, when we consider this, the falling away, the apostasia, the departure, the rebellion, whatever this is that is the the forerunner to the tribulation, it is a big time main event. Now, I want to tell you something, uh, as we look at this, I... I'd be happy at any time to talk to you about how I believe in the pre-trib rapture. I'll always be that way. And there are some people within the pre-trib moment or movement that teach this as the rapture, this departure, this falling away. Which is taking this word and in an obscure sense, uh, it can mean that a departure, a, a taking away. But every time that word is used in the Bible... It is about what we think it's about. The apostasia, the departure, the rebellion. It's not about being snatched away. So I don't think that, and I won't ever use that verse for that. What this is talking about is is a, a body of people within the church, outside of the church, in the world, in outright rebellion to God. Rebellion against everything that God is about and that God is doing. So that's the first part. Now as we continue... First, the falling away comes first, and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition. Now here's how things go along as we build, uh, we build our, our concept of the study of, of end times and the study of prophecy, because there was a time that the church looked at the man of sin as a, as a government. As a movement, not as an individual, but as a, as a, as a movement against God. And they actually brought it down to the point where they said it's the popes. It's all the popes. And, and while there is a lot of junk, folks, that, that is tied to uh, the true Catholic doctrine in, at the Vatican level, I don't think that's what this is talking about, and I don't think that's what the the language allows us to understand. Jesus called him a he, the man, a singular person. Daniel called him a singular person. Throughout the scriptures, we see this concept that there is one coming on the scene the son of perdition, the son of destruction, the man of sin, the little horn of Daniel. All of these are descriptions of who he is. The one we use most often is the term Antichrist. But when we use the term Antichrist, we need to understand that that word, the, the definition of it needs to be in the true understanding of that word. It's not anti as in opposed. It is anti in the firm of pseudo, in place of. Jesus said, I have come in my Father's name and you did not receive me. Another will come in his own name, in him you will receive. The Antichrist, the pseudo-Christ, the one that the world will receive instead of receiving Jesus Christ. So there's two events that will take place prior to the, the tribulation period that mark when the tribulation period is going to begin, when the 70th week of Daniel can start. So as we take a look, he says, First. There will be a falling away. The man of sin will be revealed. The son of perdition. Who opposes and exalts himself. Above all that is called God. Or that is worshipped. So that he sits as God in the temple of God. Showing himself that he is God. So he goes on to define. That defining moment. That we read about in in, uh, the prophecies of Daniel. That we read about in the book of Revelation. Where we see that. This man of sin, the son of perdition, the Antichrist, is going to desire everything there is to be and to know about God. And by the way, that's not just the God that we worship. It's all gods, all religions. He is going to unite all religion, all that stuff, under one banner. Look what it says. Who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called god or that is worshiped all everything we're talking about islam we're talking about the new age movement we're talking about those parts of the church that remain all religion will be found under one banner under one leader under one man and that is this this man of sin the son of perdition so he's going to unite all of those things. And ultimately, he's going to sit as though he were God at the temple. What does that mean? Well, folks, if we can go as far back as you want to go to the early church fathers. They all saw this temple as the temple in Jerusalem. Small problem for us, right? It doesn't exist. The temple's not there. There's no temple there yet. Ezekiel talks about a temple and a kingdom. We see in the book of Revelation talk of the temple and the sacrifices being stopped. So we know that somewhere on the horizon, the temple is going to be rebuilt. I find it interesting, non-scriptural, side note, that when you go to Israel and you ask them, since the genealogies are lost, they were destroyed in the temple in 70 A.D., Since all has been wiped out, how are you going to recognize your Messiah? And they all say the same thing. It's really built around two concepts. One, peace. The second, the temple. He'll bring peace. He'll rebuild the temple. He'll bring peace. He'll rebuild the temple. They don't even know that Daniel said that the, the son of perdition, the man of sin... Coming on the scene in Daniel chapter 9 would first bring or enforce peace in that nation. And in that peace, the the temple must be built. Now, one of the things we need to recognize and we need to see as we take a look at this, we have this concept in, in our Greek mindset to see time roll out in a chronology. This happens and this happens and this happens and this happens and this happens. But in the Bible, it doesn't work that way. In the Bible, it's more like looking at mountain peaks. And you look at mountain peak, mountain peak, mountain peak. And and you see they look like they all coincide right with each other. But then when you get past one mountain peak, what do you find in between it? Sometimes several miles, big valley, a, a gap, a period of time. And so we see those things taking place. As we look at the signs that Jesus gave in Matthew 24, as we look at what Paul's laying out for us here when the man of sin comes on the scene that's a sign that we're getting ready to enter in but we that that 70th week of daniel could start then it could start it's going to start at the point when that treaty is signed according to daniel chapter 9 and until that treaty signed, he could be in power. He could be uniting all religions under one banner. He could be doing a lot of things and not be doing that treaty. He could be rebuilding the temple. It's not until that treaty signed that Daniel says the clock winds again. So as we take a look at that, realize that sometimes you could be dealing with gaps of time in terms of the end times, in terms uh, as, as we... Bring those things uh, to a closure. Now, he's going to sit as God in the temple of God. Again, that word is, is naos in the Greek for temple. It means the inner sanctuary. He's going to, it's not just he's going to be outside the temple. He's not just going to be in the courts of the temple. He's going to go inside the temple. And we know, remember, we've, we've talked before about looking at the scriptures with a Hebrew mindset that says pattern, pattern, pattern. And Daniel laid out a pattern for us of Antiochus Epiphanes. If you remember, Antiochus Epiphanes was a historical figure. He was one of the four, uh, or or out of the four kingdoms of Alexander the Great came Antiochus Epiphanes. He at one time had conquered Israel, went into the temple, set himself up as as though he were God. Not himself, but he sets up a statue of Zeus to be worshipped. He provides a picture of a world leader that will come one day. It's a pattern. Daniel tells us that's a pattern. John says even today, the spirit of Antichrist is at, is at work in the world. There are things happening. The devil's not just waiting around for this guy to, to come along. He's moving forward with his plan. He's moving forward, uh, doing the things that he needs to do. You and I, we look at the news and we see things and we see Sometimes prophecy being played out in the courts of public opinion and, and throughout different nations. We look at that and we, we can't back up enough to see the big picture of how all this plugs into itself. How it all fits together. How it all begins to move forward. So Paul, in, in what he's laying out for the church of Thessalonica is these things have to happen before. They haven't happened, so you're not in the tribulation period. Okay, that's his concept that he's laying out for him: The man of sin being revealed and the falling away. Now, he says in verse 5, Now, do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? Now, that is amazing to me. Three weeks, one month, that's all Paul was there. And he had already given them... A basic teaching on eschatology, the study of end times. Well, I wish I could have been in there in the meetings. It would it would end all discussion about what we think Paul meant or what we think different things point to because we would just know, but we weren't there. We have what we have in the scripture before us. And so as we take a look at it, but I find that incredible. In three weeks, found in the church, three weeks within people getting saved, he already told them about, the rapture, the tribulation period, uh, Jesus coming for the saints. He, he taught them about tribulation and, and persecution and the need for per- all that stuff. Three weeks. And he's a busy guy. Do you not remember that I told you these things when I was with you? And now you know what is restraining that he may be revealed in his own time. Now, it's pretty simple for us to to grasp a hold of the concept of who is restraining because there are a couple of things that we can't read that take place in that verse. One, now we know what is restraining. First, the restrainer is termed in a a neutered sense. And secondly, he's termed as a masculine sense. That happens over and over and over again in the scriptures whenever the Holy Spirit is being talked about. Whenever the Holy Spirit is being dealt with, whenever the scriptures are talking about him, it will use those two tenses together. It will use a neutered tense and it will use a masculine tense. And so as we look at it, we see that taking place in this verse. And now you know what is restraining. That's the, uh, the neutered sense. What is restraining? And then that he may be revealed in his own time. He then goes to the masculine. He's going to do it again in the next verse. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains, again he, will do so until he is taken out of the way. So as we take a look at this, the, the most common understanding, now it's not, there are, anything that you read about in the Bible where God doesn't define it for us and other p- places in the Scripture Where it's open to our interpretation, people will argue. I don't know if you know that. They will. It should never be a point of division among brethren. I have often said, I don't care if you don't agree with me. I'm all right. I will let you be wrong. It's okay. it's all going to work out. It is all going to work out in the end. When we're all standing before Jesus, I doubt any of us are going to be saying, Ha, 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 ha told you. Matt, you might, huh? <laughs> we're, going to be, we're going to be looking at the Lord and just amazed in His presence as we stand before Him. But take a look, take, take a look as we, as we deal with this. Now, the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Again, there's an article before the mystery of lawlessness. It's not just a random... Mystery is not just a random thing that's been revealed. It is the mystery of lawlessness. It is this work, this, this concept, this work of, of Satan and what Satan wants to do and what he's trying to accomplish. In fact, when we consider the, the idea of lawlessness, it's talking about the overthrow of the law of God. Now, if you would consider that, the mystery of lawlessness is already at work, even in Paul's time. The overthrow of the law of God, and then you sit back and look at our world today, and tell me if you don't see that happening. We don't see that 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 our nation's courts are throwing out the Ten Commandments from any public uh, place that they might be in. The problem is, folks, if you ever do a tour of Washington D.C., I don't know what they're going to do with some of those buildings. The Ten Commandments are engraved in the building. They're there. The, the Supreme Court, for example, where they make all these dopey decisions. The Ten Commandments are in gray, but the point is simply this attitude of overthrowing the law of God. Overthrowing the, the truth. Saying that there are no moral absolutes, that there is no absolute truth. If you tell your kids, if you teach the children from the time they're kindergartners to the time they're in high school, that there's no such thing as absolute truth, that truth is relative, that you find your truth, I'll find my truth, it's not very long before we have raised a generation that hates the truth, meaning the word of God. That say, no, that can't be. That's not the way it is. That is how you take a generation and you put it on its ear. And that's how it's been done. 1933, movement came out called Humanism. Started a little earlier than that. But they came out with this decree. There is no God. We must save ourselves. And the humanists have been in control of the education system since that time since 1933 so you figure out how many kids have gone through and we are marveled when when my son goes to college and he comes home and some professor that he has some teacher in one of his classes you know is a just has this extreme animosity toward the word of God and what that's all about and they begin to teach kids that that's ridiculous and that's stupid and there's no truth in that and it's a crutch and all the different things that they're doing. Folks, the mystery of lawlessness is working. It is being done. It is being accomplished underneath the, the church's nose. And we are called by God to occupy till he comes. And whether he comes today, tomorrow, ten years, or he comes in a hundred years, it doesn't change my responsibility to be occupying, to be training up the next generation, to explain to them where are those ideals, where are those thoughts are in error, to raise up our kids so that they know the truth, so they're not floundering in a world that tells them there is none, and that you can't really know what's right, and you can't really know what's wrong. Already, Paul said, in his time, That was taking place. How much more do we see it today? How much more the mystery of lawlessness already is at work? And that that word for work in the Greek, it's interesting. It speaks of an operation of some supernatural power. That's what it means. An operation of some supernatural power. It's already at work. He's already doing his thing. He's already, that spirit of Antichrist has never left. The spirit of replacing Jesus Christ. The spirit of making him irrelevant. It's here. It's moving. It's working in the world. And we should be doing battle against it. But it says now only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. He who now restrains. Now we can go through the scriptures. We can talk about Genesis 6-3 where the Lord says, My spirit will not always strive with man. And we do a careful study in the Hebrew. We'll see that the Lord is talking about the spirit of God restraining man because man's thoughts and his deeds were evil continuously. Remember Genesis chapter 6? When the Beni Elohim, the sons of God, knew the daughters of men, we see this chaos taking place, and ultimately, God's answer to all that was the flood, the flood that would come upon that place. So we see the Lord in Genesis 6, 3, talk about the restraining work of his spirit. We see it in Job chapter 1 and Job chapter 2. When Satan comes to Job and says, Job, or I'm sorry, when Satan comes, Satan didn't say nothing to Job. When Satan came to the Lord and said, hey, when God said, have you considered my servant Job? What does it say? said, well, you got to hedge protection around him. You're protecting him. Stop protecting him and he'll curse you. Stop protecting him and he'll curse you to, to your face. So God stopped restraining. Throughout the scripture, we see the work of restraining sin in the hands of God. As a movement of his Holy Spirit. It's kind of cool because in Isaiah 59:19 the Lord says that it's His Spirit, again, His Spirit that is restraining, His Spirit that is bringing the victory, His Spirit that is doing the work. So throughout the Scripture, we can see the one who restrains, that movement of restraining as a work of the Holy Spirit, as a work of what God's Spirit is doing. And when we take a look at John chapter 14, if you want to turn there with me real quick, we just studied John, so we should be able to find it. John, Matthew, Mark, Luke chapter 14 as Jesus begins to lay out for his disciples his departure right here the the final evening before the cross he says in verse 16 now I will pray the father and he will give you another helper that he may abide with you forever the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him or knows him. But you know him, for he will dwell with you, and he will be in you. We see when we study the work of the Holy Spirit within the the church in ecclesiology, we see that there are three Greek prepositions used to describe the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. First, as we take a look at it, we see right here, in, in two of them in John chapter uh, 14, verse 17. First, he dwells with you. Para, he is alongside. He is calling. No man comes to God except that he is drawn by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit doesn't go inside a man before he's given his life to the Lord and force him to God. But he does come alongside him. He does... Whatever it is that the Spirit does on the outside of a man to woo him to Christ. To work in his life from outside, but alongside. The Greek phrase is para. Then, he says, he will be in you. That Greek preposition is the word in. Jesus, in John chapter 20, came to his disciples, breathed on them and said, Receive ye the Holy Spirit. At that moment, the Holy Spirit was in the disciples. Period. Jesus said, light be and light was. That's what Genesis tells me. If Jesus said, receive the Holy Spirit, he didn't say that and then give it to them 50 days later at the day of Pentecost. They received the Holy Spirit then. He becomes the seal and the guarantee that Jesus is going to keep his promise with us. He is in us. And in John 14, verse 16, he is with us for how long? Forever. Never not, he's never not going to be working within the church as he works within the church, even now, even today. Then we look at that final Greek preposition. The Greek preposition is epi. It means the overflow to the the, the power of the Holy Spirit coming upon you. Jesus said, "Wait here until you have been endowed by Spirit with power from the Holy Spirit." That we have that that overflowing of the Holy Spirit. That is the epi. That is when the Spirit flows out. What happens when the Spirit flows out? It affects people around us. The Spirit comes out of us and affects people around us. If I take a pitcher of water and I set a glass next to it, that is para. The Holy Spirit is beside it. The pitcher of water is next to the glass. If I pour the glass, pour water in the glass, that is in. The Holy Spirit is in the glass, It is filled with the Holy Spirit, but it is not yet affecting the world around the glass. If I take that pitcher or a hose or anything else and I put it in a glass and I turn it on and it never stops pouring, that is epi. The water goes in, pours out, runs along the table, affects the world around. That is the overflow of the Holy Spirit. That's the three modes of operation that the Holy Spirit does in the life of every believer in every church. I don't care if they believe in it or not. It doesn't make any difference. That's still how He works. I remember sitting down and talking with a brother who was a a good Baptist, and he was a cessationalist. That means he believed that the work of the Holy Spirit had ended at the apostles, and, and that was it. Yet he would tell me a story about how he was driving down the road and he just felt the Lord impress upon his heart that he needed to get off the freeway and go down this particular block and stop at a particular house. It was a guy he knew, but he'd stop and, and go up and knock on the door and spend some time talking with him and sharing with him and praying with him. And then he left and he was all excited about how God directed him. Now, I don't care what he wants to call it. That is, the Holy Spirit... Feeling him to overflowing and him affecting the world around him, being sensitive to the voice of the Holy Spirit, as the Lord directs him through the power of the Holy Spirit, speaking the words the Holy Spirit gave him to speak, ministering to a brother the way the Holy Spirit. I don't you know, I'm not gonna sit and argue with him about whether or not the Holy Spirit ceased to work or not. He's working, he just doesn't know it. It's okay. My my grandpa was awesome was an awesome man of God. He was a fairly extreme Pentecostal kind of guy. He spent his whole life in the church of the Nazarene. Have you ever been to a Nazarene church? Not very often that someone stands up, will share a word of prophecy or a word of knowledge. Someone will speak in tongues. It doesn't happen there. No, that's you' right. And one time... One time my grandpa, he comes to the church and he, he goes up to the pastor and he said, I feel like I have a, a word from the Lord. I, you know, I wonder if it'd be all right to share. The pastor said, sure, go ahead. So my grandpa shared this word that, that uh, he felt was a, was a uh a word of prophecy, a word of knowledge from the Holy Spirit. He shared it with the people. The people were blessed. The board was blessed. The pastor was blessed. They all sat down. As long as he didn't say that it was an outpouring of the Holy Spirit, everybody was fine. It's all semantics. It's all, that part of things, folks, that's, that's all semantics. I'm not going to argue about that. It's got to fall in line with what God's Word teaches, but it's not something to divide us, to tear us apart to, to bring us all, you know, hey, Holy Spirit's going to move. The Holy Spirit's going to work. And as long as it's, it's done the way God's Word calls us to do it, then, then we're online. If they don't want to admit it or see it, that's okay. I'm all right with that. The Spirit is still moving. He's still moving in the denominations. He's still moving with us. He's still moving in the body. He's still accomplishing His work. While the work of lawlessness... The mystery of lawlessness is at work. So also is the work of the Holy Spirit. Okay, so. Now he who restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. He's not removed from the world. But he is removed from the midst. When I read this, I I know that the scripture calls you and I to be salt. We are salt of the earth. We are the preservative. We are the the those who are pouring out the Holy Spirit from within our lives to a world that is rapidly rejecting the truth. That's the role of the church. That's the role of the body of Christ. That was the role of the Church of Philadelphia in Revelation. It needs to be our role, our desire, from now till kingdom come, that we are salt. That we are preservative. But the scripture declares right here that the Holy Spirit is going to shift his focus. He's not going to be working as he works within the body of the church. He is going to be taken out of the way. Not removed from the earth. Moved out of the way. He's going to revert back to the way that the Holy Spirit functioned in the life of believers prior to the church. He's going to begin the function in the life of people like he functioned with Israel. When David fell in sin against Bathsheba, you remember the prayer of Psalm 51? Lord, take not your Holy Spirit from me. You and I, we can't say that. Jesus said, the Holy Spirit was given forever. That that's the role within the bride of Christ. That's the empowerment for the bride of Christ, and that's her role within the, within the body. So when the restrainer is taken out of the way, when the restrainer is moved from the midst, now the Holy Spirit is going to be working in the para sense. He's going to be working alongside. He's going to be equipping people. I'm not saying people won't get saved. They will. They got saved in the Old Testament that way. They got saved by the Holy Spirit alongside. The Holy Spirit didn't indwell in a, in a body. The Holy Spirit didn't even indwell in all of Israel. The Holy Spirit worked within Israel's leaders, worked within Israel's prophets, worked within Israel's priests and teachers, worked within people who rose up. That's the way the Holy Spirit is going to work. The salt, the preservative in the earth is going to be gone. It's not going to be there. There will be no salt you take away the salt and what holds back the tide of corruption and evil and every other thing in this world you take away the salt you take away that restraint that the holy spirit works within the body of the church what am i talking about i'm talking about our being gathered to him That we will be gathered to the Lord and when we are, Antichrist has free reign. Who's going to picket any of his decisions? Who's going to say you need to be more tolerant? Who's going to say that's all gone, man? It's all flushed away. All those intolerant people who were holding on to that old concept, they're gone. I don't know what they're going to say. I don't know how they're going to say it. I don't really care, to be honest with you. I'm just going to be happy to be with the Lord. I'm going to be happy to be in his presence. I'm going to be glorying to say, hey, man, I'm I'm with him. What what could happen? Hey, you ever read Ezekiel chapter 37, 38? You ever look at the Ezekiel and the war that's going to take place? If you take a careful look at the prophecy in Ezekiel chapter 38, it talks about the Gog and Magog invasion going against Israel, trying to wipe out Israel. There are some people who say it already happened. There's a greater number of people who say it is yet on the horizon. My point is, the the young lion of Tarshish is mentioned in Ezekiel 38 or 39. I have to look at it again to make sure. The young lion of Tarshish. Tarshish is Britain. The young lion of Britain could be a reference to the United States. It talks about this young lion being obliterated. Why is it obliterated? Because it stood by and did nothing while Israel was attacked. It stood by and watched while Israel was attacked. Perhaps there's some type of a a nuclear exchange that takes place. The United States gets blown up, coinciding with these bombs coming and bombs going off. Put the rapture of the church. Who's going to notice? Not very many people. It doesn't have to be like the movies say. It doesn't have to be everybody wondering around what happened. People just be excited that them pesky people aren't around anymore. anymore. No more. No more. And so as we take a look at it, this is what we want to see. He who restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. That word until, again, in the Greek is in the aorist tense. And in the aorist tense, it means that there is a time limit upon the present restraint and that there will be a one-time event, a one-time event that changes it all until, until that moment. That cannot all happen while the church is present. So as we take a look at what's going on, really the only argument that anybody has is not typically whether or not there is a rapture, it's when and how the rapture takes place. I'm not, I'm not going to waste a lot of time. I shared with you already. I'm pre-trib. I believe that God takes the church out pre-wrath, that he's going, that we're not appointed under wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, all those things. Later on, we can get into that stuff a little bit deeper. But the point is, we're never called in the scripture as believers to be looking for the son of perdition. We're never called as believers to be looking for the Antichrist. What are we called as believers? To be listening for the for Jesus Christ. To be looking for our Lord and Savior. To have our eyes lifted up because our redemption draws near. So I want to live my life every day looking for Him. And when I do that, when I function in that way... I affect all the people around me because I'm not going to let this guy who I'm sitting in the, in the gas station pumping gas and I'm wondering if he's okay. If he's, how, how do I wait one more day without saying something to him? If he shoots me down, fine. But it's not an attack against me. The Lord says he hasn't rejected you. He's rejected who? Him. He's rejected the Lord. But he had a choice, right? And someone cared enough about him to give him an opportunity. And so that's the way we want to be living our lives. That's the way we want to be focused. So when that Holy Spirit shift takes place, the rapture of the church is going to coincide with that. And so again, he's saying these things have to take place before the day of the Lord, before that time comes. So, verse 8. And then the lawless one will be revealed. And then, means it takes place afterwards. After he who is restraining is taken out of the way, the lawless one will be revealed. So it's kind of pointless for us to all say, hey, the, the Antichrist is Obama. Probably not. And the reality is, folks, Antichrist is probably not coming out of the United States. The United States, if it's mentioned in prophecy, is barely mentioned. That doesn't hold out a lot of hope for me, for, for our nation. Because the rest of the world was getting along fine before we even existed 200 and some years ago. You go to Israel and try to sell them an antique from the US. Go ahead. They'll say, What's this? It's just old. It's not an antique yet. It don't count as an antique in Israel until it's a thousand years old. Can you imagine living in a place with that much history where you can't even go put a pool in in your backyard? without you dug up some civilization. And I'm not kidding. That's how most of them digs are found. Some guy working on his, his pipes, and all of a sudden he finds something, and the next thing you know, his house is now an official dig. And that's the way it is in Israel. There's so much history. Why? Because, because so much of what took place in the world started there. It began in that place. It began in the Middle East. It spread out from there. We get all full of pride like we're something. We're hardly nothing. No wonder the Bible doesn't mention us. We haven't been around long enough to be mentioned. We're just a a speck in a larger scheme of things. So as we take a look at it, then the lawlessness, or then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. I love reading Revelation chapter 19 where the bride of Christ returns with Christ at Armageddon. He, they come back, we're with him, he returns, no, we don't need to fight. Uh, we're going to be arrayed in white garments. The scripture talks about the, the righteousness of his saints as we return with Jesus Christ. How's he going to destroy the Antichrist? Literally with the breath of Of his coming, which means it's not really taking that much work. It's not really gonna take that much work. He lays out for us that what is going to take place is going to take place. What's laid out during the tribulation period is going to happen. Once it starts, once that clock starts, it will go to the point it's supposed to go to. But know this the Antichrist will lose, Jesus Christ will win. He will devour him. He will destroy him with the breath of his, of his mouth and the brightness of his coming. Now, the coming of the lawless one, lawless one, as he comes on the scene, is according to the working of Satan with all power, signs, and lying wonders. People are all excited about the miracles and things. Aren't they still today? They'll go, you put up a banner, you put up a tent in the middle of nowhere and say, miracle crusade, people will come. Some people will come seeking a miracle. Some people will come seeking what, what is this all about? What's happening? And other people to see that it's or try to prove that it's it's not happening. The point is that's how the fake Christ is received: lying signs and wonders. Huh? Jesus, what more could Jesus have done? I mean, really, than what he did? He did so much. He healed the leper. He made the blind to see. He raised people from the dead. For crying out loud, the widow of Nain is walking out of Jerusalem weeping because her son, her last son, her only son is in a casket dead. They run into Jesus. It's not a funeral anymore. The son is raised from the dead and he's going to spend the rest of his life with his mother who's rejoicing. But we need more signs. We need more wonders. The point is not the signs and wonders that they needed. The point was the message they didn't like. When the message is shifted to, Hey, you're okay, I'm okay, we're okay. Everybody's going to be happy about that. They're going to be happy about what he has to sell. And it's all lying, are all power signs and lying wonders. The working of Satan. Now, some people argue that it's fake signs. Other people argue that it's real signs worked by the power of Satan. It doesn't matter what they accomplish; is the same thing that people follow them. Regardless, I mean, if you go, if if I saw David Blaine on the street doing his levitation thing, whether I believe he actually levitated or not, when I see it, when I see that kind of. Street magic happening, man, it's not very hard to get me thinking, man, that really did take place. Who cares if he really floated or not? I bought it, and if I bought it, it's enough to deceive me. If it's enough to deceive me, it'll be enough to deceive some. Sooner or later, it'll deceive them all. All people being led astray by these signs and powers, and with all unrighteous deception among those who perish, Why? Because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved, hey, that's the bottom line. Why are these people all going to follow the Antichrist? Because they didn't have a love for the truth. What's the love for the truth? Jesus said, "I am the way, the truth, and the life. The word of God is the truth. Jesus Christ is the truth. And in a relationship with him and in careful study of God's word, we come to know the truth, to experience the truth, to love the truth. And if we love the truth, we're not going to buy all this other garbage because we've been grounded in the truth. Jesus said, I did not come into the world to condemn the world. Why? Because it's already condemned. Apart from him, the world is lost, period. God didn't try to argue the point. He just said it as a fact. The world is already condemned. And this is a condemnation of the world. The light came, but men love the darkness rather than the light. Men agape the darkness. Men sacrifice themselves to the dark rather than come to the light. That's what Jesus said. That's what he laid out for us. And so that's what takes place. Why are they perishing? Why is the message of the cross foolishness to the world? Because they don't have a love for the truth. They don't have a love for the truth. And so they're deceived. And for this reason, God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie. Again, the definitive article before the word lie indicates that this is a particular lie, not a bunch of lies, not some other. It's going to be a very particular lie. A lot of people try to say this is what the lie is. If we were supposed to know what the lie was, he'd have told us. Who cares what the lie is? I don't want to know the lie, I want to know the truth. I don't need to study the false to know what's real. I need to study the truth so that I know what's true. Focus on the truth. So he says, these who are perishing, God's going to send them a strong delusion that they will believe the lie. He's going to lift off that restraining force just like he did in Job's life. And what did the devil do? As soon as God took down the hedge of protection, what did the devil do? He didn't just sit back and go, oh, I wonder what's going to happen next. Man, he was busy. Job had a really bad day. Right? Right? And one day, he's going to lose everything. Everything's going to be taken away from him when the restrainer was taken out of the way. Same thing's going to happen in this world. When the restrainer is moved out of the way, that which restrains. When, when Abraham was facing God Almighty, and he's talking to God Almighty, and the Lord says, shouldn't we not tell our, our friend what we're doing? We're going to go destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And Abraham, knowing that Lot was in Sodom and Gomorrah, what did he say? Lord, will you destroy the righteous with the wicked? And what did God say? No, I won't. Will you destroy the righteous with the. What if there's 50 righteous? I won't destroy the city for 50. What if there's 40? I won't destroy the city for 40. What if there's 30? I won't destroy the city for. Now, Abraham's getting nervous, right? I mean, how far can I go with the Lord? He takes them all the way down to 10. What if there's 10? I'm sure he's counting Lot and his wife and his two daughters and his sons. Surely there's 10. So he stops at 10. But what did God indicate to us in that story? God was willing to do it for one. Because he went down and he found Lot, who you and I would not call righteous, but God did. Why? Because righteousness doesn't have anything to do with our performance. It has everything to do with our relationship with him. Lot, who was willing to sell out his two daughters, yet God called them righteous. Lot, who when he decided to move to Sodom and Gomorrah, do you think he knew it would cost him everything? That that one decision to move to Sodom and Gomorrah would cost him the lives of his sons? That it would cost him the relationship with his wife? That it would cost him his daughter's lives? And that his family, from that point forward, would always be known as enemies of the children of God? But that's what it costs. And when the angels came and Lot was was meandering, they grabbed his hand and they drug him out of the city and God's judgment fell. Hebrew mindset is all about pattern. It's all about pattern. And to me, I see in that pattern, I see in the pattern of Enoch being... Walking with the Lord and then he was not for God took him before the flood. I see over and over again throughout the scripture pictures of this concept that we call the rapture. God removing the restraining force from the world and then the world going into utter ruin at that point. This strong delusion comes upon them. And the last verse we're going to do tonight. That they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure... In unrighteousness, it's all about them wanting to do what they want to do when they want to do it. I mean, don't we have problems with our kids with that still? I do. I mean, still, I know that my, my son knows the truth. I know my, my children know the reality of what Jesus did for them and how he died for them. But it doesn't change the draw of the world, that enticement that says, well, if you just come with us, you, it's gonna be better. You're gonna have more. It's gonna be, it's gonna be good. Just dabble. Just play with the evil. Just, just dabble with unrighteousness. And what happens? They dabble with unrighteousness and then they get wrapped in it. And then they get tied to it. And then they get chained down in bondage. And they're caught up in this lifestyle, in this world that they never wanted to have nothing to do with at the beginning. How'd they get there? They believe a lie. That this is better. That this is good. That this will bring satisfaction. Paul, in speaking to the church at Thessalonica, says you got to keep your eyes on Jesus Christ. Keep your eyes on Him. Focus on Him. His return is our hope. His coming for us is our hope. That He went to prepare a place for me. And when He's finished, He's going to come get me. And if it's today, hallelujah. If it's tomorrow, great. If it's however long it is, it is. I don't care. I'm looking for Him. Every day I want to look for Him every day because as we take a look at these three things that paul lays out that must come before the day of the lord as we look at those three things none of those three things are restraining jesus christ from returning jesus christ can return whenever he wants to he's god i'm not he can do it when he's ready when he desires and when he comes there's one thing I want to be. I want to be found ready. Not dabbling in sin, not playing in the dark, not doing a hundred other things I could be doing. I want to be found ready looking for Him. And He promised, just like He said to Paul, to give the crown of life to all who loved His appearing. All who love His appearing. Amen. Well, let's stand. Let's let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Lord God, we thank you that we can come before you and continue to study your word, Lord. Continue to be led by your Spirit, Father. And this evening, as we set aside a a time of... uh, of just allowing the Spirit to minister. Lord God, we ask, Father, that you would move and that you would, that you would uh, just bless us continually with your presence. Father, we thank you, God, that where two or three are gathered, there you are in our midst. I thank you, Father, that, that uh, Lord God, you, your Spirit is here to guide us and lead us in the truth, to help us to, to receive the morsels that you have for us, to devour them, to make them a part of our life, a part of who we are, so that we might glory that we might bring glory and honor to you. (coughs) So, Lord, we just pray, Father, as we just set aside some time, as we worship, as we seek your face, as we seek your direction, as we seek that movement of your spirit, Lord God, we ask, Father, that you would meet us in this place. Father, that we might glorify you, that we might edify the, the brethren, that we might build up one another, Lord God, that we might be prepared and ready for the challenges that face us tomorrow, so that we, in in our small part, can fulfill, can do the work that you're calling us to do. Until that time, when we see you face to face, may we be prepared every day. May we be ready at all times, May we be busy reaching out with the truth of God's word and the love of Jesus Christ to those who don't know him, unafraid of whether or not they believe. It will have nothing to do with me if they believe, and it will have nothing to do with me if they don't. I am just called to tell, for how will they know if someone does not tell them? And how will they go if someone is not sent? So, Lord, may we report for duty this evening. Here I am. Send me. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to go ahead and do worship. Um, We invite you to hang out if you're able. If you're not, that's okay. Um, God bless you guys, and go in peace.
1: A day that's strong and near. When this dark. around. The man I've been, rising up in me again. In the arms of your mercy, I found rest. As you know just how far the east is from the west, one skull hand to the other. And it's reminding of my sin Time and time again Your truth is drowned out by the storm I'm in Today I feel like I'm just one mistake away you're leaving me this way Jesus, can you show me Just how far the east is from the west Cause I can't bear to see the man I've been Rising up to me again In the arms of your mercy I found rest Cause you know just how far the east is from the west One's got hand to the other I you know you wash me white Turn my darkness into light need your peace to get me through, get me through the night. I can't live by what I feel, but the truth your word reveals. I'm not holding on to you, but you're holding on to me. You're holding on to me. Jesus, you know just how far the east is from the west And I don't have to see the man I've been Rising up in me again In the arms of your mercy I found rest Cause you know just how far the east is from the west One scar hand to the other One scar hand to the other, one scar hand to the other, one scar.